We are working our way across the book of Second Samuel. We noted last week that one of the exciting things about the Scripture is that the Bible contains real accounts about real people. Sometimes those real people experience spiritual victory, and sometimes they experience spiritual defeat. Some Bible teachers like to break this book in the two major parts, chapters 1 through 9, talking about David's great spiritual victory and triumph, and then chapters 10 through the end of the book, outlining David's defeat. But in doing that, and and looking at the chapter that we're going to see today in chapter 10, many ask, well, why would chapter 10 be considered part of the defeat section? I mean, it's all about victory. Well, we're going to see this morning that chapter 10 and chapter 11 and chapter 12 form a unit. Chapter 10 begins with some little Hebrew words that are translated in my Bible, now it happened afterwards. And if you look at chapter 13, verse 1, it says, now it was after this. It's translating the same words. If you have an NIV, it says, in the course of time. It, it makes chapter 10, chapter 11, and chapter 12 stand as a unit. And we're going to see this morning, as we look at chapter 10, this victory chapter, that in reality, chapter 10 is connected to chapter 11. And as we get next week to chapter 11 and we see David's failure, we are reminded by chapter 10 that there is danger with Success. You see, great victory can lead to great defeat. I'm going, going to read the chapter out loud. You can follow along in your copy of the scripture, 2 Samuel chapter 10. Now it happened afterwards that the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan, his son, became king in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent some of his servants to console him concerning his father. But when David's servants came to the land of the Ammonites, the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan, their lord, Do you think that David's honoring your father because he has sent consolers to you? Has David not sent his servants to you in order to search the city, to spy it out and overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half of their beards and cut off their garments in the middle as far as their hips and sent them away. When they told it to David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly humiliated And the king said, stay at Jericho until your beards grow, and then return. Now, when the sons of Ammon saw that they had become odious to David, 
The sons of Ammon sent and hired the Arameans of Beth Rehob and the Arameans of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Maacah with a thousand men, and the men of Tob with 12,000 men. When David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army, the mighty men. The sons of Ammon came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the city, while the Arameans of Zobah and of Rehob and the men of Tob and Maacah were by themselves in the field. Now when Job saw that the battle was set against him in front and in the rear, he selected from all the choice men of Israel and arrayed them against the Arameans. But the remainder of the people he's placed in the hand of Abishai, his brother. And he arrayed them against the sons of Ammon. He said, if the Arameans are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the sons of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come to help you. Be strong and let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what's good in his sight. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to the battle against the Arameans and they fled before him. When the sons of Ammon saw that the Arameans fled, they also fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the sons of Ammon and came to Jerusalem. When the Arameans saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together and Hadadezar sent and brought out the Arameans who were beyond the river. And they came to Helam and Shobach, the commander of the army of Hadadezer, led them. Now when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. And the Arameans arrayed themselves to meet David and fought against him. But the Arameans fled before Israel. And David killed 700 charioteers of the Arameans and 40,000 horsemen and struck down Shobach, the commander of their army, and he died there. When all the king's servants of Hadadezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Arameans feared to help the sons of Ammon anymore. One of the reasons why chapter 10 is here, right before chapter 11, is to remind us that there is danger with success. Great victory can lead to great defeat. Not always. And the difference between those who are able to go through times of spiritual victory and still walk with the Lord and obey Him and serve Him, and those who don't, is this. Whether one is God-dependent or self-dependent. The problem is when we go through times of great victory and success, it's really easy to start being self-dependent. The challenge is to experience success and stay God-dependent. Many years ago, my parents lived in Phoenix, Arizona, and were friends with Karsten Solheim. You may know that name. He was the founder of the uh, Karsten Manufacturing. Many of you would know them by the Ping Golf Club. Now, I'm not a golfer. The guys who are golfers in our church can affirm that. But I do know that Ping is a good club. 
Karsten Solheim uh, died in 2000, but Karsten Solheim experienced great success as the world would define it. But in a greater way, he experienced great success following Jesus Christ. I'll remember when I was with my dad one day, we were going down a street and he said, oh, by the way, that's Carson Solheim's house. And I looked and it just looked like a house like one of us would live in. And I thought, well, that's interesting. My parents went to his 80th birthday party where he gave a great testimony of faith in Jesus Christ. And I, I remember my father simply saying that he was just a very gracious man. If you go to Moody Bible Institute today, you'll see their large athletic facility is called the Solheim Center. That's from Karsten Solheim's gifts to the college. See, he's an example of a man who experienced success and yet remained God-dependent. Oh, that all of us couldn't follow that example. But too often, great success leads to self-dependence, which always leads to great failure. So today, as we look at chapter 10, it is as a precursor to chapter 11. David's great demise that puts his family into a turmoil from which they do not recover. And it's a reminder to us all of the need to stay God-dependent. Now, as the section opens up in verses 1 through 5, David has a great opportunity to demonstrate whether he is going to respond with self-dependence or God-dependence. And it's an occasion that happens to all of us when someone causes us offense. Oh, we don't like it, do we? When someone causes us offense. Here, it's going to be purposeful. They will deliberately be offensive to David. Opportunity. Am I going to respond with God-dependence or self-dependence? Verse 1 says, Now it happened afterwards that the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan, his son, became king in his place. Now we know that the king of the Ammonites was a man named Nahash. He's listed for us in verse 2, but if you go back into 1 Samuel, you'll see that Nahash's reign goes all the way back into the early reign of Saul. We also know from chapter 8, verse 12, that at this time the Ammonites are paying tribute to David. They've already been beaten. But at some point in time, this king of the Ammonites, Nahash, was kind to David. If you look at verse 2, it says, Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. Now again, we find that very special Old Testament word. We saw it last week in chapter 9, when Jonathan covenanted with David. 
and said, make a covenant with me that when I am gone and you are successful, that you will show kindness to my descendants, that you will show grace, that you will show chesed. That's the Hebrew word, that that most important word that when it's used in context with God, talks about God's loyal love, that he's always faithful to his covenant. And Jonathan made David promise that he would show loyal love to his descendants. And David does. As we come to chapter 10, here's our word again, chesed. And this time, David is saying, Hanan's dad, Nahash, showed me chesed. He was faithful to me. He was gracious to me. He was kind to me. And now I want to honor him by showing chesed, kindness, grace, faithfulness to his son. So David sends a contingency of men to go show his condolences to Hanan. The contingency arrives and we notice here in verse 3, the princes of the Ammonites who get the king's ear and say, look at the verbs here in verse 3. You really think these guys are here to show their condolences? No, they are here to search, to spy, and to overthrow. They're here to search our city, they're here to spy it out, and they're here to overthrow it. And unfortunately, Hanan listens to the bad advice from his advisors. And he takes the contingency, and it tells us in verse 4, he shaves off half of their beards. Now, it would be nice if... I'm going to pick on somebody today. Keith, could you just stand just for a second? Now, it would be nice if they would have shaved off the bottom half of Keith's beard. But that's not what happened. They went vertical. Terrible. Thanks, Keith. (laughs) If you're new to Faith Bible Church, don't worry that that's typical because we don't normally pick on people, but Keith can take it. No, but that's what they did. They went, they took off half. And for an Israelite man, his beard would have been a thing of honor. And they dishonored them. The next thing that they did, it tells us here in verse 4, they cut off their garments in the middle as far as their hips. Now, the NASB really makes that sound smooth. Literally, the Hebrew word there is carries the idea of one's buttocks. What this is saying is they cut off their clothes so their backside showed. That's what that verse is saying. So they chopped off half their beards and they cut off their clothes so half of their backside showed. Now, even today, that'd be a little embarrassing, wouldn't it? And they sent them on their way. Word gets to David and it tells us in verse 5 that David sent to meet them. We're going to talk about the importance of that word in a few minutes. David gets word back to them, most likely through a messenger, to remain in Jericho until their beards grow so that they could return home not in utter shame. This is an affront. This was purposeful. And David is faced with a choice. 
Am I going to respond with God dependence or self dependence? A couple of weekends ago, Barbara and I were downtown Cedar Rapids. We were going to come back away from downtown. And I pulled on to our main thoroughfare, First Avenue. In the left lane was two large groups of motorcyclists. If any of you here today were part of that group, I apologize, but your group made me really mad. So there was a group of about 30 motorcyclists together, and they were strategically placed in the left lane so that they were a big group. Then there was about a 200-yard gap, and then another large group of motorcyclists. Well, I am going to have to make a left-hand turn. And I'm thinking, how am I going to do this? I need to get into the left lane now so that when my street comes up really soon, I'm not next to this large group of motorcycles. I got in the left lane. To have the lead motorcyclist from the back group speed down the right lane, pull in front of me, and then slow down to about 17 miles an hour, motioning for me to get out of the left lane. Well, I have to make a left-hand turn. So I get in the right lane, I go around him, back in the left lane. That made him mad. And so he goes around me, gets in front of me, and hits the brakes so hard that I about hit the guy. Well, now I'm where I have to make my left-hand turn. So I pulled into the left turn lane. My wife rolls down the window and said, "In a, as graciously as humanly possible under the empowerment of the Spirit of God, we needed to make a left turn. And then the guy says, oh, I get it. Well, <clears throat> this was an opportunity for Pastor Steve to respond with either self-dependence or God-dependence. I am mad. I mean, you guys can probably tell. I can get mad, and I was mad. I mean, I'm ticked. And probably the best way for me at this point to respond with God-dependence is to not respond which is what I did. I didn't use any bad gestures. No swear words came out of my mouth. I didn't stop my car and rip the guy off the motorcycle. Nothing like that. I didn't pull my 357 out from underneath my my chair. Nothing like that. But I was mad. He has no right to do that. He doesn't own this street. I needed to make a left-hand turn. This is injustice. Well, regardless of the situation, we often find ourselves in a position where we have to respond with either self-dependence or God-dependence. David's in that position right now. Hanan deliberately causes offense David was trying to show him chesed, grace, loyal love, faithfulness. And he responds with dishonor, a personal affront. David has a right to be angry. Keep your finger in 2 Samuel and turn with me briefly over to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. You ever wonder in Ephesians chapter 4, why in verse 26, in a command form, it says, be angry. 
And then it says, and yet do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger. You see, it's not sin to feel the emotion of anger. There is such a thing as right or righteous anger. We see injustice. We see people hurt purposefully. It should cause an emotion of anger within us. But Paul goes on to say, be angry and yet don't sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. That means even if it's right anger, we deal with it that day. We don't carry our anger into the next day. Why? Look at verse 27. And do not give the devil an opportunity. You see, we every time we hit a crossroads where we can either respond with self-dependence or God-dependence, every time we find ourselves at that place, there's an opportunity for us to fall. David's at that spot. And verses 6 through the end of the chapter show us that David responds with self-dependence, not God-dependence. Why? One of the main reasons is that he has experienced huge success. He is a successful king. Great victories have been won. And yet, great victory can cause believers to be self-dependent. What we're going to do now in verses 6 through 19, there's three clues here in the text to see David's self-dependence. Clue number one. Remember, there's just been this affront. David has to make a choice. Here's clue number one. David does not pray. Look with me up at verse 6. The sons of Ammon realize that they have made themselves odious. Doesn't that word just, that word just evokes this sense of we are in deep trouble. We are odious in the eyes of David. He is going to get back at us. So what do the Ammonites do? Hanan hires mercenaries. He hires hired guns to come in. He gets the uh, Arameans to cross the Jordan. In fact, they come up with a plan. They're going to surround David's forces. The Arameans will be on one side, the Ammonites on the other. David... In verse 7, here's about the hired guns. And he sent Joab. Now that's going to be a very important word. We'll look at it in a few minutes. He sends Joab and all the army and the mighty men. Joab comes up with a plan. He says, okay, I'm going to take the mighty men and I will face the Arameans. Evidently, they're the, the tougher group. And he has his brother, Abishai, faced the Ammonites. They split forces and they experienced victory. Verse 13 says, Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Arameans and they fled before him. They're hired. If this doesn't look good, I'm getting out of here. I'm not getting paid enough. 
Then the Ammonites see the Arameans take off. And in verse 14 it says, When the sons of Ammon saw that the Arameans fled, they also fled before Abishai to enter the city. It's victory! Now we see in verses 15 through the end of the chapter that the Arameans, who've already been beaten by David once, and it's recorded for us in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verses 3 through 8, that this guy Hadadazer is already paying tribute to David. He says, enough, I'm going to get this, David. So he calls for all the cousins and the brothers, all the Arameans gathered. And in verses 15 through 19, they have one last offensive. David does go out to help there, and then they're defeated, and they kind of go into obscurity. What's interesting about this? It's interesting when we go back and look at previous chapters in the book of 2 Samuel. So keep your finger in chapter 10 and go back with me to chapter 2, verse 1, early in David's reign. And in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Then it came about afterwards that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? Go over to chapter 5, verse 19. And it tells us in 519, Then David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. Look at verse 23. When David inquired of the Lord... He said, you shall not go directly up, circle around behind them and come at them in front of the balsam trees. You see, in the early reign of David, before he took action, he inquired of the Lord. What starts happening? Success. And the more success David finds, the less he prays. In fact, after that occurrence in chapter 5, we don't see that phrase, he inquired of the Lord, repeated again throughout the rest of the book. We're looking at three clues as to why we conclude that David has become self-dependent. Clue number one, he stops praying. He stops inquiring of the Lord. The second clue is the little word translated sent. It's amazing, it's a common word, but in chapter 10, chapter 11, and chapter 12, that little word in the Hebrew text translated sent in our English Bibles is used 23 times. Now, what's really important is how it is used. Notice with me in verse 7. Remember, when David became king, he was charged, one of his main responsibilities is to lead Israel to defeat the enemies of Israel and ultimately the enemies of God. That's his main role, is to pursue peace for the people of God. But notice verse 7, where these forces have gathered against Israel. Instead of David leading Israel into battle, what does verse 7 say? When David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army, the mighty men. Now, I'll tell you what really stands out is that same word is repeated and repeated. And then when we get to chapter 11, verse 1, that we will look at next week, David's great spiritual failure when he sins with adultery and murder. 
Notice chapter 11, verse 1, when Israel is supposed to be going out to war again, defeating God's enemies. Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. They destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David stayed at Jerusalem. You see what our human author of the text is trying to stress is that in all of his success, David has grown to a point where he is caught up in self-pride. He is neglecting his charge from the Lord through the prophet Samuel. He ends up just sending somebody else to do the work that he's supposed to do. Finally, the third thing that we see in this section that gives us a clue that David has grown to be self-dependent and not God-dependent is the fact that after every victory, David adds wives. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17, God clearly spoke that the king should not multiply wives. But as we come to chapter 3 of 2 Samuel, verses 2 through 5, what do we find? David adding wives. As we come to chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, what do we find? David adding wives. In fact, both of those times are after great times of victory. That's what they do in this culture. I'm victorious in battle. I will add some more wives to my harem. There's great victory in chapter 10. What will he do in chapter 11? Add another wife. One who's not available. You see, David has experienced great success. But he has met that success with self-dependence instead of God-dependence. In July, my three adult sons and their families are going to go hiking together in Colorado. It makes me feel good. Number one, that my adult boys actually want to be with each other. And two, that's what we did as a family. Growing up, we would often go to Colorado. My mother's from Fort Collins. My brother lives in Denver. And that's what we do because it's beautiful and it's very inexpensive. We're hiking. We're we're not going to go spend money on stuff. We're going to enjoy God's creation. Well, one of those years when we were out in Colorado and the boys were little, we probably tried to do a more strenuous hike than we should. And we were tired. It would not be a hike rated for young children. There were lots of rocks and places where there's like a cable that you have to hang on to to traverse the trail. And we were talking about turning around. But there's a problem. There's a bend in the trail. And part of me just thought, I wonder what's around the corner. We can't quit now. There's a, there's a bend in the trail. What if there's something just phenomenal right around the bend? 
So we did. We kept going. And we turned the bend. And the trail opened up into the most beautiful scene. It's beyond me being able to describe with words. There was a trout stream running through the valley. There were wildflowers all over the valley. And the Rockies formed a bowl around this valley. It was just a picture of serenity. The smells, the, 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 the hearing the, str- the trout string coming through, and no one was there except us. Oh, wouldn't it be good just to stay in the serenity, in the peacefulness of this? This is awesome. Now, one would think that the most dangerous part about our journey was the trail that had all the rocks. Just like in our lives, we think, well, of course, the most difficult, the hardest, the most dangerous part of our daily lives is when we're going through all these rocky times and these trials, these these things that are pulling on us and, and we're exhausted. But in reality... The most dangerous part of our Christian lives is not the rocky path. It's the valley of serenity. Because when everything's going good, and we, in a sense, are finding victory, we are most prone to self-dependence instead of God-dependence. How do I keep from falling into self-dependence? Number one, as a pastoral staff, we continually remind ourselves that as a church family, it's vital that we stay connected. That's why we stress our community group so much. The Christian life is not meant to be lived on an island. We need each other. We need to have each other speaking truth into our lives to practice the biblical one another's with each other. We have to walk the Christian life staying connected. One of the danger signs that we find to look for is if we start pulling back from people, that's a sign that we've got to do the exact opposite and stay connected with brothers and sisters in Christ. Number two, we've got to stay in the Word. Remember David? Deuteronomy 17, 17, you shall not multiply for yourself wives. What does he do? He kind of takes this book and sets it aside. When we go through times of serenity, it's important that we stay in the book. Remember, it's the only book that God's ever written. It's how he communicates with you and me. When we're on the rocky path, we tend to come to it more, don't we? Man, I don't know how I'm going to make it through today. I need some encouragement in the word. It's more dangerous when we're in the serenity of the valley and we start taking this and setting it aside. How do I keep from becoming self-dependent? We stay connected with brothers and sisters in Christ. We stay in the book and we continue to pray. You know, when we're praying... In reality, what we're doing is saying, God, I need you. I'm dependent on you. Apart from you, I can do nothing. 
Please give me an extra measure of your grace today. Please fill me with your spirit today. Control me so that I respond in a Christ-like way so that others can see Christ lived out through me. David finds next week, as recorded for us in chapter 11, that to be self-dependent leads to spiritual failure. To be God-dependent is the only way that we can keep walking in a way that's pleasing to Him. Well, how does that happen? It happens through great victory. It's so easy for us to become self-dependent in times of victory, in times when everything's sweet, when we're in the valley. Because great victory can lead to self-dependence, which always leads to great defeat. If you're here this morning, and, and you know, as we talked earlier about the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that Simply put, Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead. Ten words. If you don't know if you're rightly connected to God here or not today, one of our elders will be back in our prayer room. It's just directly behind you. I encourage you to stop back there. They can give you some material. You don't even have to talk with them if you don't want. Just say, hey, can I have some of that material? You can take your own Bible and look up passages that show you how you can know for sure that you're right with God and your sin is forgiven. Or maybe you're here today and you're on the rocky path. You're hurting today. Don't leave today hurting without pulling together and praying. So I encourage you to stop back by the prayer room at the end of our service. Father, we thank you for your love for us, your loyal love. We thank you that there are times when we get to enjoy the serenity of the valley. But help us when we are in those times to remember of our the vital need for us to remain God-dependent. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.